You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. In the world of espionage, how many threads are unwoven? On this episode is the author of The Peacock and the Sparrow, I.S. Berry. I.S. Berry spent six years as an operations officer for the CIA, serving in wartime Baghdad and the Middle East, including two years in Bahrain during the Arab Spring. And Ilana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. It's a pleasure. So I like to explore, if you don't mind, what I call origin stories. Sure. Uh, first, well, second, I want to talk about the title of the book because it fascinates me. But Thank I want you. to talk about your origin story growing up. And I came across a fascinating observation. The observation was, in the life of a child, sometimes along the way, the door opens up to their future. So during your childhood, did the door open up for you to bring you to where you are today? That's a great question. Um, I think I was always drawn to writing, um, and I wrote throughout my life. I kept voluminous travel journals when I traveled around Europe, um, but I don't think I could ever make it. Uh, I didn't think I could ever make it a practical career. Um, most writers have trouble supporting themselves. Right. So, um, so I, so I kind of took the more practical route. I, I went to law school, although then I became a spy, which is not exactly practical. <laughs> um, but I, I guess, um, you know, a couple teachers encouraged me along the way. And, um, and I would say that that encouraged me. I mean, that kind of opened doors and made me believe in myself. Um, and then I think the other thing was I had had all these failed attempts at novels throughout my life. And I didn't, I, I felt like I, I, I could write, but I didn't have the right story to tell. And I think being a spy gave me the material that I needed, the story. To, to craft the story I wanted to tell. That was, that was my lane, was, was spy novels, and that was my voice, I think, was being a spy novelist. I'm going to explore your voice. Your voice is kind of unique, and I'll go into more depth if you don't mind, but the origin story now of the title, is it based on a fable, or did you make this up, The Peacock and the Sparrow? Yeah, it's a parable from A Thousand and One Arabian Nights um, about a peacock that warns a sparrow not to stray too far um, from his nest and he disobeys the advice. He doesn't heed it and he gets trapped in a net. And it's kind of about the futility of trying to escape your destiny, which is a theme in my book, both for the characters and for the Arab spring, kind of both sides think that they're destined to take control of Bahrain and destined to win the Arab spring. And the characters too kind of try to, um, fulfill their own destinies. My main character, Shane Collins, as you know, he, it's kind of his last gasp, his last tour, and he's trying to make something of sort of a failed career and a failed life. And, you know, he feels like his destiny is, is mediocrity. And in a way, he's trying to escape that. He's trying to make something um, of himself. So, yeah, so that was, so there are many layers of meaning to the peacock and the sparrow. Right. Um, since it's been published, a lot of people have come to me with their own interpretations of the peacock and the sparrow. And I love that. I love that people have so many different uh, thoughts on it. And I think it does speak to um, an interesting relationship between two people, you know, the peacock and the sparrow. Right. And it's interesting to hear 
people speculate about which two people that is, because there are a lot of kind of different relationships in the book. So I'm going to, we've already talked about the peacock, the sparrow. I'm going to mention another bird, the pigeon, and I'm going to tell you why. I just, okay. wa I just watched the, based on the book, the documentary called The Pigeon Tunnel, which is all uh -huh. about John le Carre and, uh -huh. and David Cornwell. And what fascinates yes. me there, and this is where I'm going to go, maybe a, a little in an odd way, where more of it, this is more of an observation than a question per se. So I'm going to put it out there and let you respond. Errol Morris is off camera the whole time of the interview. And what came out of that was the part of the byplay was, is the interviewing interrogating the subject, and is the subject interrogating the interviewer. So I'm going to oh. ask you, did you ever sit down or conduct interrogations in your professional life? But as a writer, as we sit across from each other for the first time, in a positive way, am I interrogating you and you interrogating me to make sure I know what I'm doing? That's such a good question. I love these questions. Um, in my professional life, yes, I absolutely uh, interrogated uh, I, I interrogated, for example, a suspected terrorist, um, and, but on a regular basis, I would talk to sources or um, potential sources, walk-ins. Um, and I think there's a fine line between questioning and interrogation and right. sometimes maybe a legal line as well. Um, and I don't know exactly where that line falls. Um, I think your question, I love your question because one of the things I tried to do in my book was to create this relationship between handler and source, between the protagonist and his informant, and um, to create a relationship where you don't really know who's questioning whom and who's controlling whom. Right. And, um, and that was very much my experience in spying in real life, that um, you don't know when you're being manipulated. Um, you don't know when your manipulation is being successful. It is successful. And um, there's this constant kind of give and take and this constant fluidity and um, you never quite know where you stand or where you stand or what to believe. So um, so I think it's it's an apt question. In my podcast library, I have a couple of go to podcasts and one of them is Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Yeah. And she had I don't if you haven't been on, you should be on because she's amazing at what she does. And a huge following, which I which I wish I had. But she interviewed twice David Cornwell. And the one question that made her pause and set her back, because you can't throw her off her game because you've been doing it for so long and she's so talented. She asked him, how were you recruited? And he didn't want to answer that. So I'm going to follow up on that. How were you recruited? So my answer is pretty easy and boring, which is I sent in my application, just the way you would send in an application to any job. Um, you know, it used to be, every, everybody thinks there's this myth, like they tap you on the shoulder in a bar right. and, you know, they're like, you know, do you want to work for a certain organization? That was totally not my experience, nor was it the experience of anyone I know. Um, I do think that's kind of a myth. I think they used to do that, um, maybe decades ago when it was much cozier and, uh, and you could kind of cut corners. But when I applied, it was very standardized and boring. So part of the reason I do the podcast is to explore the art and craft of storytelling. And I'm going to reference Graham Greene, 
one of the gold standards of my, all my favorite author. of, of my, all of this. And he said, writing is a form of therapy, and the writer has the advantage of, in a sense, spying on people. Do you agree or disagree with that in terms of what you try to do? And also in your professional life, because you talked about that, you were a spy. But as a writer, is the advantage that you can spy on people and create a whole story? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, um, writing was a kind of therapy um, in processing my own experiences as a spy. Um, and I think, and a lot of my characters are either amalgams of people I knew right. or based directly on people I knew. So um, I think in a way it was sort of an extrapolative um, spying in the sense of, of I would take these, these kernels of truth that I knew or these people right. and put them on the page and put them in sort of fictional situations and um and think about what would they do or what would happen in this scenario or you know who who would uh who would the station chief uh Whitney Alden Mitchell in my book who right. who, who would he side with you know who would would he would he go so far as to uh as to cut corners and possibly act illegally based on the people i knew so it was, I think, in a sense. So let's reset. This is the podcast off of Periscope. My guest is the author of The Peacock and the Sparrow. Ah, yes, Barry. The beauty of this for me is, and I think you alluded to it, that you had so many people asked about who was the peacock, who was the sparrow. And that means they're paying attention, but they're bringing themselves into the book. So yeah. I'm going to once again put out a thought process in my mind without a question, but I want you to respond if you don't mind. What I took away from this, which really got me in a very visceral manner, were trees. And I'm going to oh. tell you why. You, and, did you ever watch the movie Avatar, the first one? I have never seen it. Well, central yeah. to the whole story, the first story, first iteration of Avatar, is the mother tree of all the people. And then we have in Cambodia the hanging tree. In your book in Bahrain, you have the Tree of Life. Yes. And then we had the massacre at the Tree of Life synagogue. And then there's a legacy of lynching trees, which forbidden fruit restrained fruit in this country. So I, I thought this whole aspect for me, which I really wanted to think about, was how you depict trees in your story. And how, are they important or are they just kind of tertiary? Well, I love that. I'd never thought of that. I mean, it, it, they are important. And definitely that the two trees were deliberate, the tree of life in Bahrain and the killing tree in Cambodia, in the um, which is in the killing fields. And they were supposed to be sort of diametrically opposed, right. um, as right. so much of the story is between good and bad. And also the tree of life in Bahrain is, is rumored to be in the Garden of Eden, which, you know, there's a conversation in the book between Collins, the protagonist and his informant, where they talk about the the um, the Garden of Eden, and they and one of them says, "Oh, that's where life began," and I think Collins says, "Or you know, the birth of sin, depending on how you look at it." Right. So right. I do think it's these juxtapositions that um, that I found really interesting, and I think that the trees really embody that. Um, I think you're you're right that the. The tr that trees um, 
are so weighty in terms of their representation and their symbolism. Um, and I love that you found that in my book. I think one of the joys as a writer is when readers discover things that maybe weren't as obvious to the writer. So that's wonderful. You talked about Shane Collins. He's been in the CIA for a long time, probably he's at the back of them, back end of his career where he's established right now in Bahrain. He's been in Baghdad, I believe, or Beirut. You can correct me on that. Baghdad. He has unique view of the definition of espionage. And I'm going to share that and let you respond. He said, now, hopefully I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing. Hopefully I'm pretty accurate. The only profession where two people meet, usually strangers, and are wholly linked, as closely bonded as lovers, like natural destiny dictates destiny along the way. I love that description that you created for him in terms of the world of espionage. Thank you. Espionage, I think, is unique in my, in my experience in that you are, um, you meet a stranger and, um, and, and your stranger, the stranger that you're meeting with can really make or break your life in terms of your professional life, um, can make or break your career, um, can can make or break intelligence. You know, maybe they have the keys to the kingdom, maybe they don't. Um, and it's really unusual that way because you don't even know this person. And um, suddenly your fates are sort of intertwined. And um, I don't know of any other profession like that. Um, I, you know, I, I, one of the stories I've told in talking about my book is how in Baghdad, um, one of my sources helped to uh, track down a, an alleged top 10 terrorist target. Right. And we were successful in, in apprehending him and um, detaining him. And he didn't confess. And years later, um, he still hadn't confessed. And people, and people started to think maybe we'd gotten the wrong guy. And it was a really um, hard moment for me, and it still is. And um, and it's it, and it's it's funny because it's it all depends on the case officer's relationship with you know his or her source, and it, it's such a it's such a unique relationship. And also that passage was uh, a little bit inspired by. Um, by Eric Marie Remark, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. Which is, uh, one of, I love the book. It's one of my favorite books. And there's a line in there where he describes the camaraderie between soldiers as, as being closer than lovers. I think it's such a beautiful line. And I, and I couldn't have said it better myself because I think, and I kind of almost, spying's almost a little like that too, when you're in these really um, harrowing professions where lives are on the line and you form these relationships that are so close um, that the only way to describe them is like lovers. So let's explore. You, this is, you gave me a perfect segue, by the way. Let's explore uh -huh. some relationships that I want to talk about in the book. And I want to mention two unique relationships. One is Shane Collins and his source, Rashid. Mm -hmm. The other one is Shane and also Almesia. Is that how I pronounce her name? I say it Almesia, but Almesia. I... And I'm, I'm, oh. this is where I'm going with this. Once again, this is more of an observation than just a, a bullet point question, if you don't mind. And my observation is their relationships are like a window, sometimes clear, 
sometimes cloudy and sometimes opaque. And sometimes it's just a mirror where you see yourself, your reflection comes back to you. And that's what I thought about these people and what they're sharing, what they're not sharing, but it seems to be ongoing. It seems to be shifting, but it's a very central part of the book with these different unique characters that you created. Thank you for saying that. I, I, yeah, I love that. I agree. I mean, I think um, part of the point of my book was about the nature of manipulation, which is that um, when you manipulate for long enough, then sometimes it comes back and you're the one being manipulated. Right. Um, that's sort of the nature of, of espionage. Um, and I try to convey that with these different relationships that at any given point, you don't really know who's doing the manipulating, who, who's doing the manipulating. Like, is it, is it Collins who's manipulating Rashid or is it Rashid who's manipulating Collins? And same with Almisa. And I even, you know, uh, well, I don't want to give anything away, but even between some of the, 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 the lesser characters, the more minor characters, you know, I kind of wanted to raise questions in the reader's mind about who was having relationships with whom. Um, and, and I do think that, it, you know, here's Collins who has been a, a lifelong spy. He's been battered by years in the business. Um, and I do think it really wears you down. And he's spent years manipulating people. And suddenly, as you said, he's kind of looking in the mirror and maybe people are manipulating him. I don't know if you have time to watch television. I think this great... Uh quality TV. Right now I'm watching on PBS, which is a, a British production called um, About War. And it's they're in their second season. And it's amazing how they uh, portray that. I think it's called World on Fire. And I also... I, yeah. And I'm also watching uh, on, I believe it's HBO called um, The Gilded Age. And why I reference The Gilded Age is because it is so descriptive about all the scenes, about the costumes, about the food, about the settings, about the dialogue that's what's said and not said. And I think your gift is how descriptive you are as a writer. And Thank you. I think I think you're not showing off. I think this is who you are. And I think of a couple of the scenes that take place where you set the book, one in the opera house is one thing that stayed with me in terms of how descriptive you are. And the other one is the Marine Corps ball, where a lot of the players come together in the interaction, but it's, it's the costumes, it's the food, it's the setting, it's the byplay. And I think that sets you apart, certainly from a first time novelist, but even in the world that you exist in terms of the genre, where there are a lot of really gifted writers, there's something about what you created that I believe sets you apart as a storyteller. Thank you. That's such a compliment. Thank you. I, um, I mean, I do, for me, descriptions, everything that's, I think that is just who I am as a writer. Um, for me, the setting, and in this case, the country, Bahrain, were like characters to me. Um, and I wanted to, and especially Bahrain, which I think is as changing and evolving and interesting as a human in my book. And I think for me, the way to make that come alive is with those details and descriptions. 
Um, you know, it's the same when, when I traveled around Europe, I backpacked in my twenties and I kept these voluminous travel journals and I would take notes on everything. Um, just, just the way I did in the book. So, um, and, and, and to me, um, my favorite books were always ones that, um, gave equal weight to style and substance, you know, where the prose was, as beautiful as the story where the, you know, it was it, the prose you would read for its own sake. Um, those were always the books that inspired me. Um, you mentioned Graham Greene earlier. He's my favorite author and the quiet American is my all time favorite book. And I mean, the way he describes Vietnam, I don't remember the exact words, but he describes it as something like a cup of tea, a pipe of opium. I mean, just these exquisite metaphors and, and the touch of a woman who might tell you she loves you or something like that. And it's like, I could sit there and read those, you know, for hours because they're just like poetry. Um, and I, I felt that way about uh, The Year of Living Dangerously by oh. C.J. Cox, which, which was made into a movie with Mel Gibson and people know the movie, but actually the, the book is, I think, a masterpiece. And um, the uh, and Lolita by Nabokov, right. which is one of my favorite books because the prose is just, Exquisite, in my opinion. And in that movie was Linda Hunt, who was terrific, the character. Yes, terrific. Ter- yeah, she terrific. Did. So I'm, I'm going to share another personal experience that I have. And I want you, because of the part of the book in Phnom Penh. Yeah. Where I remember I flew to New Delhi. I was involved in a research project in the foothills of the Himalayas and coming out of Darjeeling and Sikkim. But I was remembering... Coming out of the airport into the streets in New Delhi, the heat, the sounds, the smell is nothing I ever witnessed before. And it was a wonderful experience because it was so, no pun intended, so foreign to me. And the way that you described coming out of the airport in Phnom Penh is also terrific because it brought me back to my own personal experience because movies are visual. But to create that vision in our minds and our eyes through the written word, um, I really enjoyed what you did with that. Thank you. And I I loved Cambodia, so I really wanted to bring it to life. Um, And I I personally, I agree with you. I think that, you know, movies, really good movies are amazing because they're so, it's so easy to visually transport you. But I feel like in a weird way, writing, if it's done well, is even more powerful than, than a visual medium. Um, I think it can really, I mean, I think it can just, um, immerse you, you get immersed in a way that you can't even with a visual medium. So that was sort of my goal. Um, and I also found, you know, the, the places I write about my book, Bahrain and, and, um, Cambodia aren't exactly like garden, garden spots, uh, as we called them at the CIA, you know, they weren't really like pushy assignments. Um, and those are, they're my favorite places to write about. And they're my favorite places to go to, to be honest. I think there's such, you know, beauty in an unconventional sense. Um, you go to these places and maybe they don't have, um, the most modern, stateliest, expensive buildings, but I think they have so much richness and culture and character and history, and um, and I just tried to bring that out. So you you mentioned movies, and the year of living dangerously was an yeah. ama- amazing movie because you could feel you could feel it. Yeah. 
you know, I haven't come up with movies yet. They're visual, but they haven't come up with the sights and the smells and the sounds of what they're depicting on the screen. And I wonder in your mind, are there any movies, any TV programs that reflect your world? I'm going to mention a few. I really like Zero Dark Thirty. I like that a lot. And also... Yeah. And I also just watched a streaming service called Special Ops Lioness about undercover. And, you know, it's it's dramatized, but I like the cast. And Netflix right now is doing something called Spy Ops. And I've watched a few of the episodes. I watched uh, Wrath of God because it was involved in the massacre of the Olympics in, in Munich and the revenge that comes from that. So I wonder in your world, does anything yeah. accurately reflect your experiences and your colleagues and your peers' experiences over the years? Yeah. So part of the reason I don't watch a lot of spy movies, um, part of the reason is because most of them, I think, don't accurately, all that accurately depict the world. But there definitely are some. Um, more recently, the ones I've seen um, were the movie Beirut with John Hamm, which oh, I, I, thought yeah. I really loved that. And I thought it had great atmospherics. Um, and the other was, I just watched it not that long ago, um, the series Ghosts of Beirut, and, and which also um, touches on, I think peripherally touches on the Munich bombings as well. Um, so I, I thought that was really terrifically done, um, Ghosts of Beirut. So and the, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Finish your thought if you like. I was just going to say that in terms of atmospherics and, and evoking a time and place, the series that just wins it for me is the Babylon Berlin series. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, it's a German series, and I think it's now in its fourth season about pre uh, it, about the Weimar Republic and pre-World War II Berlin. Right. And um, it's all, it's dubbed, it's all in German, dubbed into English, but the sense of time and place is so spectacular. I mean, just the best series I've seen. So we said one more time, this is a podcast off of Periscope, I guess, is I.S. Berry, the author of The Peacock and the Sparrow. Before we started, we talked about Paul Vidic and his book, Beirut Station. And one of the things I took away from that is because I didn't know this. First of all, Beirut was considered the Paris of the Middle East at one point. And it's also in a lot of movies with the wars and the proxy wars and everything else going on. But I didn't know that Kim Philby spent time in Beirut. And in the world of espionage, um, he's in the Pantheon. He he really is. So I'm going to take one step further from that. In your world, when you're dealing with, if you did, and you can only tell, I imagine you can't tell us, double agents and traitors, how are they perceived? Because I had a conversation with somebody, we haven't had the episode yet, named James Wolfe, wrote the book called The Man in the Corduroy Suit, and he's got some background in British intelligence. And the one thing that came out of our conversation was, it seems like your world is a zero-sum game. They spy on you, spy on you, we spy on them. Their traders come over, our, you know, it's a back-and-forth thing of double agents, triple agents. What is it, a zero-sum game, and how does your world deal with all that? Because it's very complex. Hmm, I'm thinking about that question. Um, how do we view double agents? Is double that- agents, traders, and everything else. Yes. And in terms, sometimes do you feel like maybe you have a victory, 
but maybe you're just spinning your wheels when you take the view. And I hate when they say a view from 30,000 feet because it's become a cliche, <laughs> but there are views from 30,000 feet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, um, you know, a, a Kim Philby type is everyone's worst nightmare. Um, I mean, we, and, and everybody at the agency hated traders. I mean, that was just kind of went without saying. And, um, we, uh, because of Aldrich Ames, when we were at the farm, when I trained at the farm, which is the spies, the CIA's uh, spy right. training center, right. um, we, no one knew each other's last names. And it was a little bit weird because this was a job much like kind of being in the military where you are, you might depend on the person next to you for your life and vice versa. It was one of those singular professions, you know, like law enforcement, the military, where you're in this kind of shadowy world and the only people who can relate to you are the people next to you. And yet you didn't know their last names. And that was, that was weird. I mean, it was, it's this constant, like, trust me with your life, but at the same time, I don't trust you at all. And, um, because the potential for, for, um, betrayal was so huge, you know, I mean, one person could blow everything. So it was kind of a dichotomy, a juxtaposition that was always there that was, um, unsettling. And I think, um, you know, the agency has kind of gone through different phases of, of paranoia, for lack of a better word, um, where, where, you know, for whatever reason, threat of terrorism, threat of leaks, the pendulum has swung to, um, being very suspicious of its employees. Right. And so there have been periods where, when I was there, when they really would crack down on, um, on writers, for example, or contact with journalists. Um, and, and it has become, and it had become kind of, uh, at times a very insular paranoid world. I will say, um, I've seen a real, a real change in the agency over the years. I'm obviously no longer there, but just, um, from my interaction and, and from what I've heard, I think, um, the agency is really kind of in a good place right now. And they're very reasonable, I would say. Um, For the general public who doesn't spend a lot of time watching the news programs and reading and newspapers and books, because that's probably have too much time on my hands. I'm fascinated by that. But how would you define proxy wars? Because in the book, there's proxy wars. As we speak in the world today in terms of geopolitics, we are dealing with, as we speak, really what's going on in – the Middle East and Israel yeah. looks like Lebanon may get in, you know, and, and, you know, there's so many players in this that it's become, it's almost the law of unintended consequences. So for the general public, what is a proxy war? Yeah, a proxy war is, is basically when you have a, uh, a, a country, a large power that is using a proxy, a smaller group uh, for, for its own ends, for its own purposes, um, acting through this group as a proxy. Um, and yeah, that was that was sort of the way the Arab Spring was. You had Saudi Arabia backing the, the Sunni monarchy in Bahrain, and then you had, there, there have been many press reports that show that uh, Iran, to some degree, is uh, funding and supplying and supporting um, what would otherwise be a very legitimate democratic movement, the Arab Spring, right. um, which, is, which in Bahrain is mostly Shia um, who comprise the, the revolutionaries. So yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's dangerous. It complicates the calculus. It certainly complicates the calculus for the West and for America in terms of getting involved because this isn't just 
a civil war. This isn't just one side against the other. This isn't just the king against a bunch of, you know, internal agitators. It's you're bringing in Saudi Arabia, you're bringing in Iran. And I think that's what made the Arab Spring such a, a tricky conflict conflict for the U.S. and why the U.S. has kind of danced such a fine line between supporting monarchy and supporting these democratic activists in the Arab Spring. But you're right. I mean, now we're seeing in press reports evidence of Iran supporting Hamas in the current conflict in Gaza, um, and certainly Iran, or certainly Iran su supports Hezbollah in Lebanon, So, which is also potentially a player in that conflict as well. So right now in the news are the Hamas has all these underground tunnels, miles and miles and miles of tunnels, and there's a lot of controversy. Probably the hostages, hostages are there, and can we save them? Are they being sacrificed? And this is not a direct correlation, but you have, well, I'm Asiya. She works, she's an artist. Yes. She also works and volunteers and teaches in an orphanage. Yes. And I don't want to give away, I don't want to be spoiler alerts, but when I think about the tunnels that are there uh, yeah. hiding the terrorists, and I think about what's yeah. going on in the espionage. It's not a direct yeah. correlation, but there's some similarities there. I mean, do you want to kind of follow yeah. up on that? Yeah, and in fact, well, I, I think you're right, and I think there's an even more direct link, and this doesn't have any spoilers, but um, in my book, Rashid, Collins' informant, at one point reveals to him um, the opposition's weapons cache, right, their revolution factory, which right. is underground, right. kind of tunnel of sorts. Um, and that was taken from real life. I mean, in the sense of what, when I was in Baghdad, we would, we would, um, get intelligence for things like that, that that's where, that's where they would store their weapons. I mean, that, and it was both a literal and a metaphoric underground world, right? They had this whole, you know, network below ground, literally and figuratively. And, um, it was quite difficult to learn what the truth was and, and where these things were, you know, in my book, um, uh, Rashid shows these, these underground caverns where they're storing their weapons and, um, to, to Collins, the protagonist, but even after Collins sees it with his own eyes, he's not exactly sure what he saw. He's like, is this, you know, was this it or is right. there something more? And right. is this the real deal? And I think, you know, it's that, it's that constant ambiguity, that constant, um, a world where truth is, forever elusive. And I think um, we see that now with Israel and Gaza. I mean, we don't, we don't have a lot of information. We don't know. We don't know exactly where the hostages are or how these tunnels work. So Lana, here's, a, here's another question. Did you write intelligent reports when you were active in the CIA as an operations manager? Yeah, as an operations officer. Yeah. Yes, so officer. Um, yeah, yeah. So you would basically, you would write two kinds of reports. Um, one was sort of operational reports, which is which were related to the handling of your source, um, telling where, when, how you met the source, kind of the logistics and the tradecraft of it. And then you would write an intelligence report, which would have the actual information. Um, and that would be everything. When I was in Baghdad, it was everything from um, here's the location of a roadside bomb to here are the names of this terrorist group. 
Um, but in, and in another country, it might be the plans and intentions of a government, for example, um, how they were going to, what their position was going to be on a particular negotiation. Those would all be, um, that would all be information that would go into an intelligence report. So in the hierarchy of the CIA, when you wrote your reports and they got passed along to Langley, were mm-hmm. they accepted? Were they dismissed? Because I'm referring back to the characters in the book. How huh. were they interpreted from what you wrote to where you sent them? And were they acted upon or is just like buried in a whole bunch of information and it kind of got, well, this may not be accurate and let's just move on. Well, I think a little of both. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it, w- it would be rare that a report would get rejected I and mean, pretty much everything would go up the chain. Everyone, mo- most reports would get read at some point. I think the difficulty, I think people have said this before, the real challenge in intelligence it's, is not necessarily getting information, it's knowing what information to look for. So, I mean, and this was sort of the case with 9-11, um, you know, I read the 9-11 commission report and one of the things it said was that, you know, we had a lot of the data points there. We just didn't recognize them as data points. Right. So I think that's that's the challenge for the intelligence community. Um, in my job, it was a little unusual because I was in Baghdad, which was a war zone. So our customers, normally our customers would be policymakers in a peacetime country. And the reports, as you said, would go up to Langley and then to policymakers, possibly to the National Security Council, possibly to the president if it was if it was important enough. Um, but at in a war zone, your primary customers are the military. They're the guys next to you. Um, they're you know it, it was they're the guys who are going out on patrols and they want to know if there's a bomb on this street and they want to know if a terrorist lives in this house and they should go wrap him up. Um, and so it was a little unusual that way. And, and in a weird way, it, it, the, the intelligence was more actionable. And, um, and in a weird way, it was both more uh, rewarding when you got it right, right. and um, more devastating when you got it wrong. And in some ways, it felt like the stakes were higher um, because lives were on the line. Um, and I, and I, and I, I think I, I tried to kind of convey that in my book. Um, you know, Bahrain is kind of halfway between a, a peacetime and a, and a wartime country, I think is how I describe it early on. It's sort of, it's kind of halfway towards a simmering conflict. And, um, I think throughout my book, you know, the stakes kind of get higher and higher with the intelligence, um, to the point where they're getting, um, intelligence reports on weapon shipments, which, you know, the stakes are very high with weapon shipments. When you came home, how yeah. difficult was the adjustment? From Baghdad? Yeah. Su- super, yeah, super difficult. Um, it was, yeah, it was rough, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think I almost certainly had some kind of PTSD, um, which I, I think almost anyone going to those environments does. Um, at the time I didn't know it, no one knew it. Cause the definition, I remember looking it up at the time and the definition was you have to have witnessed a specific traumatic event in order to have PTSD. And, uh, I had not witnessed a very specific traumatic event. Um, I had, I had basically lived through a lot of small traumas, which were that we were getting bombed every day, um, about 20 or more times a day, we would get mortared and rocketed inside the green zone. I would often wait for sources 
um, at the checkpoints, we were mostly inside the green zone, but, um, and our sources would usually come in and we would have to escort them. They, they would walk into the green zone and we would escort them in. We would wait for them at the checkpoints. The, um, the risk was that checkpoints were bottlenecks, which made them a favorite target for suicide bombers. So on a regular basis, you know, I would stand at these checkpoints and knowing that, that a suicide bomber could be the next car to drive up and, um, and that really took a toll on me, you know, day after day, living with that constant fear of this could be your last day. And it was just arbitrary. It was just when, you know, if you, if you happen to be lucky or not. And, um, we worked seven days a week, long hours, 14 hour days. And, of just that constant fear. And I don't know how it doesn't take a toll on right, someone right. after that. Um, so it took me about a year when I got back to really just to even return to normal, like to not have, I, I had terrible panic attacks and I didn't like crowds or traffic jams. Um, I would stare out the window for hours at a time. Um, and it took about a year for me to just function normally. I don't, I think, um, I think with, with PTSD, you never it's never, you never cure it. It's just like any mental health issue. It's something you learn to live with and right. deal with. Um, and I think I have someone recently, um, for the first time explained to me, I, I had never heard this, but, um, they said the difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder is that post-traumatic stress never goes away, but it's only a disorder when it interferes with your life. So that made sense to me. And I think if that's true, I probably no longer have PTSD, but I think I live with the stress, if that makes sense. Early on in the conversation, I mentioned the observation that along the way, a child has a window or a door opens up to their future. And you have a character in this book who had a traumatic childhood in a sense. Yes. The door opened up and there's an aspect, and I'm not going to say too much, but it leads to extreme violence. And yes. there's duplicity there, but also there's relationships there because the book is about relationships. But that childhood, the door, the window opens up, and then what transpires from there is something all of us have to think about in terms of our personal lives, but the world today. Yeah, I, and I, I thank you for recognizing that. I, I deliberately made um, the main character have a complicated childhood, um, you know, with some trauma in it. Um, and I think that does impact his life for better and worse. And I think it, you know, he reveals he has violent, some violent tendencies. Um, I think he, I think he kind of, the, the best and the worst kind of come out in him in the book. And um, I think in, in a way, he also tries to escape his past and tries to do the right thing. Um, but I think absolutely our, our childhoods all affect us, not just our childhoods, our, our pasts, um, the things we've done. I think they affect us, they haunt us. Um, and for me, Collins, the protagonist, his, his somewhat traumatic childhood to me, made him a, a more empathetic uh, character. Um, 
because we're all, you know, we, we've all experienced trauma in, in one form or another at some point in our lives. So here comes the tease, because I was also thinking about another character in the book. I'm not going to give it away, but certainly going to have to read the book because it's applicable, not just the column, but it's also applicable to somebody else in the book. Let's shift gears because Alma Katz has oh, been yeah. a guest on this program multiple times for um, – her second book, which was Red London, I read the first book called Red Widow. And when she, we were having a conversation, your name came up. And this is, a, this is the context. She says, sometimes in the world of publishing, female writers have to use their initials because the public doesn't want to know they're female writers. I had on uh, Estee Petty, who's an investigative journalist for news. They wrote a book about a major mafia figure. And her first name is Sandra, but she said the same thing. The publisher wanted my initials, not my first name. So is that yes. something that you have to wrestle with? Or you just like having initials on the cover of the book? Well, I think the biggest reason is what you said, which is that um, for better or worse, the spy novel genre is still heavily male, both readers and writers. And I think um, the reality, which is unfortunate is that a lot of men will uh males will be less inclined to pick up a book by a female than 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 by a male <laughs> i think that's that's the reality um so that was a calculus that was part of the calculus um and i think that uh i, I mean we're not there's no secret about about the fact that i'm female because you can see my picture in the back of the book yeah and I do interviews and, you know, I'm not trying to hide. <laughs> um, but I guess, I, I guess the idea was, you know, there's no reason to advertise it because, um, you know, I, I want a fair shake. I want people to, uh, judge my book on its merits. Um, on top of that, the, my name, Ilana is, it's hard to pronounce. It's hard to spell. Uh, so, you know, just, it initials seemed easier. The response of the book goes way beyond the world and the genre that you write about. And here's my thought process, my questions. I've tried to explore this before. Are you, and you've done a lot of media. And once again, because it's, you should be doing a lot of media and conversations and talks. And imagine you, this is not the first conversation you've done on a podcast or a radio program. Are you more comfortable being around and being interviewed with your peers from the world of intelligence, or you take questions from me and observations from me, who's totally outside of that framework? That's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I, I think, um, I think I'm equally comfortable. Um, and I, I think Sure, when I'm with my peers, I think they obviously understand the world in a way that maybe an outsider doesn't. Um, at the same time, I don't think I ever, even now, I don't think I really consider myself a true insider, even though I worked at the CIA as a spy for six years. You know, it was never uh, a great fit for me, to be honest. Um, and I think that comes out in the book as well. Um, I think the job I absolutely admire people who do it. It's a necessary job, but I think it requires uh, you to be comfortable with manipulation. Um, I think it requires you to constantly, the ends always have to justify the means and right. you constantly have to make that calculus in your mind. Um, 
And it was not a great fit for me. And I'm so thankful for the time that I, that I had there. Um, but I, but like I said, I don't know that I ever felt like I was truly an insider. So I, it's, it's easy for me to, to talk with people who are outsiders. So I'm going to leave you two last things. First thing was I give everybody who's been my guest and thank you very much for spending a lot of time with us a chance to challenge me. What did I miss? What did I get wrong? In terms of our own conversation, what did I miss and or what did I get wrong? I think that's such a, it's so cool that you do that. I don't think I can think of anything that you missed or, or got wrong. Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't think of anything. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think you ask great questions. All right. So, I so I, I love the pause. I tell, I tell Chris who's sitting next to me, the best thing can I can ever do in, like, in the interviews I've been doing for decades is when the guest pauses because it means they're thinking about it, whether or not they're going to have an answer or not. I really love the pause. So here's the absolute last thing. If somebody is knocking on your front door and you open it, who would take your breath away? Um, can this be like living or dead? You can take it anywhere you want to go. And Frank. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> um, who I just think... Um, showed sort of a moral courage and that, uh, you know, sort of unparalleled and was a great writer and someone I related to as a young girl and um, kind of felt like was my sister from another world. I love that answer. Thank you very much. Cause most people, I mean, for me, it's, I, I had said this before, if, I, if at my front door is Barack Obama. That would do it uh -huh. for me. And I'm, I'm sure I could come up with 10 other names, but that would be my response. My guest has uh -huh. been I.S. Berry. If her name is pronounced, first name is pronounced Alana. The book is called The Peacock and the Sparrow. It is so highly praised from all segments of the genre and beyond. I thank you so much for your time for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Larry. This was, this was such a pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we're going to play The Name Game. I'm Larry Davidson. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Thank my first guest, the author of The Peacock and the Sparrow, I.S. Berry. Her first name is Alana. So apropos of that, I'm going to play with everybody the name game. Some names where the first names of male or female can be unisex. Let me give you some descriptions of it is a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. I'll let you see, think what you see about this. In my neighborhood, the kid down the block was Billy Shapiro, became a great doctor later on. Billy Jean King, Billy Eilish. In my life, I knew a Mindy. There's also a Mindy Rudolph, who was a basketball referee in the NBA. My daughter's name is Jessie. 
How about the outlaw, Jesse James, or the Olympic star, Jesse Owens? Shirley Jones was a terrific actress. Shirley Povich was a famous sports writer. Carol, typical female name, Carol Vadney was a hockey player that played and won the Stanley Cup. Now, I'm going way back here, but Gene Chandler was a singer in rock and roll. You also have Gene Kennedy Smith, Jackie Robinson, the baseball player, Jackie Kennedy, Robin Roberts from ABC News, Robin Williams, one of my favorite comedians of all time. Taylor Lawton, the actor. Now, you know where I'm going with this one. Taylor Swift. Gail Sayers, the football player. Now, once again, you have to be of a certain age, going way back in the histories of sitcoms on TV. Gail Storm. Mandy Moore from This Is Us. Mandy Batankin, singer, actor, great role in Homeland. Gene Simmons from Kiss. If you're a movie fan in the history of movies, the actress, Gene Simmons. The actor, Jean Sidney Portier. His daughter's name is also Sidney. Husband and wives, Daniel Lynn Siegler. Other names that can be male or female. Cameron, Charlie, Jordan, Chris, Angel. And finally, I leave you with this. Johnny Cash, a boy named Sue. For next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to her kitchen chair, she